I think in the future, architecture and, and environmental design is all about making all these things experiential and tangible for people moving through space. At the moment, there's a clear separation between, you know, someone walks around with their headphones on, walks through the city, and he's actually in a different world than the world he's walking through. And I think these worlds will uh, converge more. The Business of Architecture and Design is brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Architectural Review Magazine and Australian Design Review. Welcome back for Episode 2. Chris Boss and Vince Frost continue their conversation. Today they will give us insight into Vince's early days with Pentagram, the correlation between language and communication and the evolution of technology. How was that back in the day um, when you were working in Pentagram? I mean, I imagine that was like a proper office with 20 desks or how many desks and people having meetings every day and working on paper on on actual projects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I I mean, that was like, I think it was about 80 people there at the time. This was in early 80s, actually. I know, actually, it wasn't. It was was late 89, 89 I started there. But... Yeah, very quiet, very peaceful, very focused. And, you know, we tend to kind of do a project at a time. And uh, there was, because the business had been around a while, there was a lot of respect from the clients for what the Pentagram business did and does. And it was led by senior partners. So they then they were very much involved in the project, each and every project. So it was a real good learning school for me. In fact, it was... It really elevated my understanding of design, the importance of ideas to a new level that I hadn't experienced at design school. And the design school was only like a, a two-year course and a very, um, I guess, a, uh, a light kind of, as often they are, just kind of lightly kind of touching all the subjects of design. And it, But it definitely was something that, that, when I got to Pentagram, I realized the power of ideas. When I saw uh, John Rushworth and, and Alan Fletcher and people like that, designing posters on the floor and printing out pieces of, you know, with a photocopier, black and white at that time, printing out and cutting out bits of paper and type and sticking it down in different sizes. And I kind of watched it in admiration and confusion. And uh, and one day it just kind of clicked for me and I go, wow, I get, I get what they're doing. I get the, I understand they're moving the stuff around and the hierarchy and the, the layering of it or the message. I understand the refining of an idea down to its most simplest form. And it just gave me goosebumps when I, when it, when it kind of clicked. And I still to this day get goosebumps when, you know, play around with something and I have, have an idea, you know, just, I think that's a natural thing that everybody has. But for me, it's kind of that goosebumps and that feeling is definitely, it definitely tells me that it's right from my part in that problem or that opportunity. I see that you uh, spent nine years at school in, uh, in a gymnasium in, uh, in Germany. Oh, no, gymnasium school. What, 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 what is that? The gymna- Were you going to be in the Olympics or something? You- no, that's... Uh, is that wrong? It's kind of a lost in translation. In Germ- Germany, uh, we call high school gymnasium for some reason. Oh, okay. So it has nothing to do with <laughs> sports. So it's essentially from year five to 13. Yeah. You're attending this school, which 
is a general education, but it can have a focus on language, on uh, arts or music or science. I think similar to the Australian system, although I'm not too familiar with the Australian system. Mm-hmm. But so mine was uh, based more on languages. Mm-hmm. So I had to study Latin, which is a very interesting, not very useful, but <laughs> interesting language. Yeah. And so I thought it wasn't very useful at the time, but now it taught me that Latin is so complicated that you have to really analyze every sentence in order to remotely understand what's going on. And it kind of teaches you to analyze everything you see mm-hmm. and try to understand it and make sense of it. So if you want to learn any other language, if I had to learn, say, Brazilian, not that it would be easy for me, but I would have like a method to approaching the language and trying to like learn the grammar and understanding how the composition of the words makes sentences and so on. So so Latin has opened a lot of those avenues for me in terms of languages. Yeah. And I think also in terms of origins of a lot of uh, words, which, you know, uh, most of the words either come from Latin origin or from uh, Greek origin. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the word, then you actually understand what what the word means and what the greater context is. And usually word has more than one meaning. Mm. And so I don't know if you can loosely translate that to, to the creative industry, to architecture and design. I mean, you work with words and with letters and font types mm. and logos and so on. And so it's always about what is actually the message behind that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting because if you don't, if you don't know the language, and my experience working in, on Japanese Vogue in, in the early tw- uh, 2000s, not knowing the language and trying to learn the culture really hindered my ability to design uh, an effective message. You know, the communication was really, really difficult because you were just actually just laying out information without understanding what it was, which I found incredibly frustrating. You know, because I care so much about the message and, and how... Yeah, it's interesting. And when... Go on. How, yeah. um, you know, language... Now we have this new language, which is the language that we use in text messages and messengers. Yeah, abbreviated. Uh, and, and how we communicate online, you know, with emojis and sound effects. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you do that or not when you when you talk to someone over Facebook where you have these filters, all of a sudden you wear glasses and hats and wigs and so on. And it's kind of, it's like augmented reality in, mm. in the way that we communicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that messaging then also comes into the real world, right? Where all of a sudden, uh, I'm sure like half of your advertising campaigns are somehow related to the digital world at the same time and have hashtags and have speech bubbles and have emoticons and so on integrated. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this layering, which is also a language that you need to understand. And for example, I can't say that I understand the language of a 16-year-old person today who is fully immersed in, I don't know, Snapchat and all those kind of things, the way that they communicate with each other. But if you want to reach those people, you as, as a the marketing and, and graphic design person, you kind of have to engage with that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I think it's also it depends on the audience too, because the audience, if a younger audience, of course, is very au fait with that short form way of communicating. But you know, if it's someone who's older, you know, there's there's just nuances. I kind of I, it used to bug me initially when people started kind of abbreviating and making up new words and spelling things wrong, because I'm I'm a really bad speller myself. But I often make time to just check everything I send, and and sometimes some bad ones get through. But I, but I've I don't know maybe because I care about getting it so getting it right and obviously when you're in publishing and things like that when we're doing designs when we're putting communication together we need to check 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 again to ensure that you know nothing has gone wrong or nothing has been misspelled or gaps or yeah you know, do you know what I mean I mean all that was but real I, skill in itself proofreading I mean the the augmented component of that so you write good morning. But good morning comes with a smiley and a heart and uh, a gif of a cat falling off a table. You know, so it's all this added content and emotion to a simple message such as good morning. Mm. And in architecture, we kind of experience augmented realities, essentially, where you move through the city or through an urban uh, or, or even a landscape or rural environment, but it's rich with information. And so far, the information was like a street sign or a traffic light or something painted on the ground. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, increasingly digital and immersive through digital signage, kind of changing content projections, LED screens, etc. And we think in the future, this will be holograms, that will be projections on your lens, onto your glasses, augmented content through your earphones and so on. So you're kind of working, walking or moving through an augmented world. Yep, totally agree. And, and it's kind of the feeling that you get already when you walk through Times Square or Shinjuku or something yep. where everything is happening in real time around you. And it is happening in real time around you, just usually it's not visible. And so I think in the future, architecture and and environmental design is all about making all these things ex- experiential and tangible for people moving through space. At the moment, there's a clear separation between, you know, someone walks around with their headphones on, walks through the city, and he's actually in a different world than the world he's walking through. Yeah. And I think these worlds will uh, converge more. Mm, totally agree. And definitely, we've we find over the years we've been pushing for more of that because we can see the technology and the potential to to do that to integrate the that into the the environment. But you know, for a long, long time, you just get huge resistance from the clients because they're not necessarily up to speed with that, or they see that as uh, another cost that they haven't they have no budget for. I think it's changing. It's changing. There are the odd project that comes through that allows us to do that, which is exciting. But still, even those I feel like are being held back from what they could be. And in a way, that's holding back how people experience our cities in a more fluid and integrated way. Creator of the Business of Architecture and Design podcast, blogs, conferences, and videos, Content Brains can assist you with all of your content needs. We will work with you to develop content that inspires, educates, and connects. For more information, visit the episode notes in this podcast for a link to our website.
Yeah, I mean, transportation is another topic that, that is related to that. I just saw a bus driving past. I mean, buses are great, but they're not exactly the latest technology. No. Sydney just built this amazing tram, which wasn't exactly cheap. Didn't exactly go seamlessly during construction. So it, it took like years, essentially. It was very expensive. Now you have two tram lines that are half the speed of the bus line that goes the same way. Yep. And while tram and public transport is very commendable, <clears throat> and I actually love it because it's a thing that I grew up with in Germany, it's not exactly latest technology. Mm. So I think in the future, how will we move through the city? I mean, do we have to each own our own vehicles? Do we have to wait at train stations with tracks and above ground and uh, underground pedestrian connections? Or is there a much more seamless integration of pedestrian movement and uh, mobility, scooters, bicycles, self-driving cars, drones? Mm. All those things, I think, will completely transform the way we live. I mean, when you think about drones, the word drone is now a word like any other word. Three yeah. or four years ago, drones didn't even exist. So you had to, if you wanted to do a, a, a film shoot from the air, you had to hire a helicopter yep. at, at great incredible expense. expenses. Yeah. Yep. And now you go to any surveyor and he says, yeah, we just send the drone up and we give you the view from 80 meters from your new residential development. Mm. So everything is becoming incredibly accessible in that sense. And so the drone can take photos. The drone can transport food yeah. to isolated people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It can, you know, it, it can probably deliver Corona test kits to people who shouldn't leave the house. Yeah. The drone can be big enough to move ambulances around or hospital beds, you know, all those kind of things. And 10 years ago or 20 years ago, that was all science fiction. Yep. But now it's all technologies on the cusp of implementation. Mm. In Dubai, they have drone police, which sounds a little bit scary, but it's essentially police uh, testing, deploying yeah, drones rather than cars and motorbikes to get police staff around town. Wow, amazing. At the same time, Dubai to Abu Dhabi is testing the Hyperloop system. Mm -hmm. So there's this notorious highway between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Yep. I think it's like 200 kilometers and it takes about an hour by car, mm -hmm. which tells you about the average speed of the drivers. Yeah. And in the future with the Hyperloop, it will take three minutes. Wow. So you can actually physically commute within a couple of minutes between two of the major cities yeah. uh, in the Emirates. Yeah, and yeah. all those things I think are really exciting. And maybe that takes us to another topic as well, which is we are obviously in Australia in this beautiful country. Mm -hmm. We're blessed with abundant nature and harbor and national parks and all these things. But we're not exactly leading the world when it comes to technologies like that. No. We're not leading the world in transportation, sustainability, no. energy, or any of these things. I know. I mean, it's and, quite and I don't know. I don't know how you uh, approach that with your clients because your job is always to tell the client what is the latest and greatest and mm -hmm. how can they transform their own 
development or project and future proof it and kind of lead the way. Mm. But quite often they, uh, I don't know, what's your experience? Uh, are you getting those kind of briefs? Mm. I think more so with the, the built environment than necessarily with other brand projects. But I find that, yeah, I, I, it kind of going back to what you said about the, the, the light rail, the tram system they put in here, which was obviously they had one a long, long time ago and removed it in the 60s, I think it was. It's just like, it's just, oh, my dogs are snoring in the background. Can you hear them? No. <laughs> Can you not hear them? Okay. No. Okay, that's good then. But I was just, yeah, I was just flabbergasted when I saw that, you know, first of all, them cutting down the trees in Anzac Parade. It was horrific. Those 100-year-old trees. And and seeing them putting fixed-lined trams with electric cables on top of them, you know, it's just like yeah. other countries in the world have that tram system that is not fixed to the ground and it's not, you know, powered by cables. It's just... God, it's so backwards. Such a such an incredible expense and disruption, and it could have been done a completely different idea that would have been much more uh, would have changed the game, would have changed the way that we do things, it would change the way that we transport. I mean, that kind of money, billions. Well, let's put it that way. You know, when so so technology always reflects the society, and there's always breakthrough in technologies, which is related to breakthrough in sciences. So the steam engine, for example, was a great invention and it completely transformed the world mm -hmm. through the industrialization. Mm -hmm. The computer, of course, was a huge invention and completely transformed life as we know it. So in 2020, if you build a transportation solution for one of the wealthiest cities in the world, what would be that transportation solution? Mm -hmm. Would that be based on the steam engine? Or would that be based on something that actually reflects the society that we live in? So in 50 years, our grandchildren, will they say, wow, these guys, they really were forward thinking and they <laughs> built this amazing thing? Or will they say, oh, they put the tram back in that they took out 100 years earlier? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's a missed opportunity. I mean, we could have probably electrified all of the cars in, in New South Wales with that kind of money. The current cars, you know. Could have done something different. Yeah, well, but are we producing any cars in Australia or are we closing all the car industry? Yeah, no, it's all closed down now. I mean, that, that, the, the Holden factory could have become an electric car factory. It's such a, you know, they probably shut that down and dismantle it immediately, probably. Yeah. And so why are we not doing it? Because it's too expensive and too expensive relative to what, you know, like, I can't believe how cheap cars are. You can buy a car for twenty thousand mm dollars, -hmm. which is now ten thousand US dollars. A, a whole car, like who builds a car for for ten thousand US dollars? Mm. And so that is only possible because you build the car offshore and you build it with cheap components and you don't invest into innovation and technology. Mm -hmm. I think Australia should be able to build the most amazing car ever for Australian climate, yeah. <laughs> for Australian environments and conditions and Absolutely. and that's what we should invest in and that's where you know people are lining up at center link <clears throat> which is terrible why can't we put all these people into work for something that makes sense totally agree yeah but that's just not how the society works though is it 
Because Not at the moment, but maybe it will have to. Mm. Well, it it should do. I mean, it's the problem is it's an emergency now. You know, people make knee jerk reactions, knee jerk decisions on how to deal with the now, not thinking long term. Perhaps human humans are capable of so much, and that's not a new thing. Uh, so much better too to create things that are actually add serious value and you know just design things better. You know, not not just kind of. In a way, I feel like we're all being held back, and often we're being held back by. People who have the money who are dictating where how that money is spent, and and often it does rela- relate to money. And an idea needs to be realised, and it's the money that actually backs that to make it uh, a reality, which for a lot of designers is a bit frustrating because if they had the opportunity to make their ideas come to life as they, you know, th- think that, that they should be, uh, it, the world would be a very different place. I think. Like if you were developing your own. Your suburbs, or if you're designing your own, you know, homes, etc. For you, you were the one in charge of. You had the money behind you, and you had them. There's no one was kind of tampering with your, or diluting your vision. Do you think that would be a better outcome? Well, it's an interesting uh, scenario. Uh, if if you become your own client, I mean, all the projects that I did for myself, I enjoy it very much, which is usually like small houses or terrace house extensions and so on. Mm-hmm. But what I enjoyed is having the control mm-hmm. uh, creatively, but also over the budget, over the timeline. And I have to make that decision. Do I want uh, to buy this amazing, I don't know, Ross Lovegrove or Karim Rashid light? Do I want to build a light myself? Do I want to buy a knockoff? Or do I want to put a random light in there? And then I would always decide for quality, for creativity, and for something that I can put my name behind, that I can be proud of, and that tells the story. You can't necessarily translate that uh, always into larger developments, Mm. I guess. But you would wish that you can work with partners, financial partners and development partners who share that sort of vision where it's not about short-term profit but about long-term sustainability of the idea of the place mm. of, of the substance mm-hmm. and we quite often find that internationally the kind of clients that come to us are the ones that are looking for something different uh, authentic, creative and usually out-of-the-box kind of thinkers. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the reasons why we work very internationally. I mean, when you look at China and the Middle East, Europe, and maybe parts of America, you would find a lot of very entrepreneurial, interesting people around who are trying to find, like trying to shape the future rather than shaping the short-term kind of financial benefits. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's always easier said than done. And the criticism is always like they are autocratic systems and they don't have the same democratic decision-making process and fundraising process, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. 
but I think we also use that often as an excuse here. And at the decision-making process in, in Australia or in Germany, it's just such a long-winded process where by definition you come out in the end with a compromise. Mm-hmm. So by the time everybody had their say, everybody had their concerns, everybody gets a little bit of their way, you mm-hmm. end up with this kind of gray sauce rather than this amazing vision. Join us tomorrow for episode three, as Chris and Vince continue their conversation on the business of architecture and design. Thank you for joining us. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. And if you enjoy listening, please rate us. It helps others like you to find us more easily. The Business of Architecture and Design is produced by Joanne Davies, Head of Content Brains and publisher of Architectural Review and Australian Design Review. Madeline Swain, editor of Content Brains, and Tilly Bensley-Netheim, editor of Architectural Review and Australian Design Review Architecture. <laughs>